I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. I'm just so glad nothing happened while we were all on vacation. Yeah, we picked the right week, very didn't quiet. we? A great week to take off. So, you know, we had, uh, so were you in Charlottesville for your vacation? No, I was not. It was second thoughts. We went somewhere else. Went to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And how was it? Portsmouth is a lovely, lovely town. Any white supremacist violence there? <clears throat> not that I could detect. Although there are white supremacists in New Hampshire. There probably are a few. And, I had a, and they live free or die. They sure do. And they had, they have great bars in Portsmouth. And I had quite an adventure with scotch. Very yeah. Do you tell? Coconut washed squash. Wait, what? Yes. Scott, wash scotch. <laughs> you can't even what say is it. Coconut mean, what? So you take scotch and apparently you put coconut oil in the scotch and shake it up and you let it like sit and swirl around for a couple of weeks. And then you skim off the oil, which rises to the top. And the coconut is in scotch is infused with this delicate flavor of coconut and you use it in sort of tropically drinks. This huh. seems like an abomination. It totally does, except when you taste it, and then it seems like a revelation. So wait, what, what, what did you put it in? I forget what drink exactly it was in, but it was delicious. I'd had a few by that time. A pina wow. scotch colada? A pina, pina scolata. <laughs> sounds terrible. <laughs> but I did not feel terrible. Right, tweet your outrage at Shane about this, people. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Everything Old is New Again edition. I'm Shane Harris, rested, rejuvenated reporter, back in the swamp. You do. You look tan, calm, happy. I feel very calm right now. It'll probably last for about 24 more hours. No, not even that. Have you met <laughs> on the <laughs> internet yet? <laughs> can, can I just, Did something happen? <laughs> well, can, we, can I just say, like, like, lots of stuff has happened, but in... <clears throat> Our areas, you know, like the areas that we've all been focused on, it's been eerily quiet. It hasn't like, been like a no Russia big show. Mueller news, no big, yeah. you know, Trump o'clock, uh, Russia revelations. Your cannon has been silent. The cannon's been quiet. It's yeah. it's been, uh, you know, there was that one great Adam Davidson story in the New Yorker, but other than that, and that's a week ago, and so it's it's. And we're not going to war with North Korea yet, as far for as now. we can tell. For now. And you know, we're just mildly escalating the longest war in American history. I no did have deal. a lot of national security-related dreams while I was gone. <laughs> That's bad, Shane. Including one that, like, George W. Bush was secretly contacting me about something that Trump was doing with Iran. That and wasn't I, a dream. That it was wasn't true. <laughs> I woke up was like, wait, am I, am I, am I reporting on something? Yeah. That really happened. That really happened. Uh, I am here, of course, in the studio with my friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi. Shane. We are we back. missed you. Oh, I missed you guys, too. Uh, well, some things did happen. In the past couple of days, and we're going to talk about that. President Trump has unveiled his new plan for Afghanistan. Kind of feels like the old plan. We're going to talk about that. Um, Cyber Command gets a big boost and is now a full-fledged combatant command. You're it's a all real boy, It's Cyber all grown command. up. Cyber Command is all grown up. It ate its spinach and grew big and strong. <laughs> and speaking of grown-ups, Steve Bannon has been shown the door at the White House. We'll talk about what that portends for national security policy making, such that it is... Uh, in the administration. Um, let's start with the uh, the Afghanistan plan. Uh, after 
Uh, lighting into his generals, telling them that we're losing in Afghanistan, demanding that we win. Trump finally accedes to their plan to basically send more troops. Um, this looks a lot like the plan that we've had for maybe the past 16 years. We can talk about that. Um, tomorrow, why don't you kick us off? What are your, what are, what are your first reactions to what this proposed announced strategy is, uh, which we know very little about the specifics, but, um, seems like in the specifics, it feels pretty familiar. It, it does feel pretty familiar, and it's unlikely to produce any uh, results that are radically different from those that we've seen uh, in previous iterations. But I do think it's worth noting that this is uh, a president who came into office with, who you know, very much on the record repeatedly in wanting to pull out of Afghanistan, seeing this as a loser. And that, you know, starting position was part of the sort of pendulum swing that we've seen between George W. Bush, Obama, and then Trump, you know, whether Afghanistan was the good war or the forgotten war, uh, the good war, or the loser war. Um, Obama came into office thinking it was the good war, but by the time he left, uh, didn't didn't have a clear path to victory and was, you know, really focused on trying to end the combat role for the United States. Um, but as we've seen uh, in Iraq as well as in Afghanistan, if the U.S. Um, and the local government are not working closely together, not just on military operations, but on governance and rule of law and the underlying conditions that prevent the resurgence of terrorism, lo and behold, terrorism reemerges. Um, and, uh, and we've seen in the Afghanistan case in recent months not only the resurgence of the Taliban, not only the emergence of an ISIS uh, affiliate in Afghanistan engaging in more operations, uh, increases of uh, bombings and attacks in Kabul, uh, but we've also seen other states taking advantage of these developments to the detriment of American interests. The Russians reportedly selling weapons uh, to the Taliban or providing weapons to the Taliban. The Pakistanis kind of slacking off on their commitments to the United States to um, constrain uh, cross-border uh, movement and and uh, support for groups that that are affiliated with terrorist activities in Afghanistan. So, look, it's a crappy situation with no good options. And I think that, you know, what the U.S., what the military commanders came up with and presented to the president again and again and again over his repeated objections is the best that they can do. They know there's no support in the U.S. public for a major escalation. Um, and they can't promise that even a major escalation will, quote, win the war, unquote. And so they're basically saying, give us a few more troops. We'll do a, a little bit more on the military side. And the big bet is that on the political, economic, you know, diplomatic side, the work can get done to make Afghanistan stable. It feels like it feels like a marketing pitch. I mean, it feels like there is no appreciable difference in what is being sold here it's just that there's a new salesman but it is interesting that once again we've been through a cycle of trump coming in to sort of a, a long-standing national security problem we've talked about this in relation to north korea sort of contemplating very disruptive options sort of doing his trump thing and then ultimately being convinced to take sort of that sane 
you know, middle ground path <laughs> that kind of the the establishment players are pushing him towards. Yeah, the conventional path. I, yeah. I mean, do we have any counterexamples in which he actually has meaningfully deviated from that sort of that that safe center space? Yes, we do. Uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. Sure, I'm not on national security, but well, I mean, you know, I think the military would would say they have said explicitly that climate right. change is a national. But I think to Susan's point, it's like he's not coming up with I've got a new plan that I'm going to implement in defiance. But of it's more plan. like he loses his nerve, right? He sort of he has all this bluster, he says all these things, but it sounds like he really does listen to the generals that that, that those national security advisors do have his ear in in some kind of way that gets results. Yeah, but I but I think. Uh, that's maybe a little bit too generous to him. Um, so first of all, in a lot of these cases, he does not have developed policy ideas to begin with. What he has is rage that we're not winning and rage that other people are getting the better of us. And he hasn't considered options well enough to have a sense of how current policy in fact weighs against other options. And so when he, uh, w you know, when he actually is forced to do so, what he tends to find is that, you know, he's not sophisticated enough to frame it this way, but that winning and losing is not a binary, it's a spectrum. And that policy is, a, is, is about optimizing uh, outcomes and that you know, we're that current policy is not that far from the point of at least expected optimization. And so he tends to go somewhere near there. The trouble is that he uh, sometimes he doesn't and sometimes he's not willing to do that, uh, that work that he appears to have done here. Look, I would also say in, in the context of Afghanistan, that there is something laudable about what his policy choice has been that I think is, you know, worth highlighting, which is that he's uh, basically decided, and they're all but saying that this isn't winnable. Actually, Tillerson said it. We said can't. yesterday, we may not win, but the Taliban won't win right. either. That we're fighting. <laughs> that, there you go. That we're fighting for a stalemate in order to condition a. Uh, in order to condition a political process. That is actually a fine policy. Um, and uh, it's a fairly modest policy objective in a country in which our policy objectives, both under the Bush administration and under the Obama administration, have been a little grandiose at times. And so I do think in this situation, they've kind of evolved in a, in a, pretty, in a pretty respectable direction. So I, I think I agree with you, Ben, in the sense that this is probably the most, quote, realist, unquote, policy that the Trump administration has put forward on a major national security issue. But I have two big buts. The first but is that they are increasing American troop commitments, um, and they're doing it in a way that is not honest and straightforward with the American people first so far about how many troops they're going to add. And- Second, without a clear strategy for victory. So you're telling the American people, I am deciding as the president of the United States to send more of our men and women into harm's way, but I can't explain to you in an articulate or credible manner how that's going to make a difference to our national security and our national interests. We're going to fight terrorists. We're going to kill terrorists. Um, and I think that the the lack of 
clear strategic articulation um, is compounded by the by the many months in which Trump has eroded his credibility as a truth speaker to the American people and his moral credibility to send troops into harm's way. The second but is very much related, which is that to the extent that it is the strategy you describe, Ben, it hinges on things that this administration denigrates, defunds, actively devalues, and when it tries to use them, screws them up, i.e. diplomacy and development. Okay, because you can't simply kill the terrorists to a stalemate. Um, you, you can push you can them back and then, them. and then use it for diplomacy. Um, but Tillerson is horrific at this, as we've seen in case after case. The State Department is dismantled. In fact, Tillerson had dismantled the, the SRAP office, the Afghanistan and Pakistan office, until he was forced by public disclosure to reverse that decision. And, you know... They're not they're not going to be able to mobilize a whole lot of new assistance for Afghanistan um, to incentivize the behavior that they want to see when they're cutting the aid budget by 30 percent. So the pieces are not in place for that realist strategy to succeed. And what that says to me is he's fooling people and maybe he's even fooling himself. This is Afghanistan is a place where Trump's rhetoric about terrorism, which is that you just kill the bad guys and that's how you win, falls down flat. I think the point about the the sort of the moral credibility is a really important one. This is one of the first times we've seen Trump really undertake that sort of like that that task that requires lots and lots of of public faith and trust and that's saying you know I'm going to send more people into harm's way especially coming sort of right on the heels of Charlottesville where it feels like he is at his most depleted I mean who knew that there could be a bottom lower than where we were um it's it was such a uh, remarkable jarring contrast one the non-disclosure of the relevant facts like how many people do you have in mind here? And at the and at the same time, sort of the, you know, um, uh, trust me with people's lives. Trust me to take the, the uh, you know, to understand the gravity of this decision and trust me to follow through in a responsible way. And he just didn't have any of it. And so all all I really saw in response beyond sort of the substantive critiques of it not being a different policy were people sort of applauding him for being able to read off a teleprompter and not say something horrifying for, you know, a 15 minute speech. Can I ask you guys one question about this, though, which is about the role of McMaster and Mattis in the wake of the announcement? Like typically, OK, Trump is describing this as a military forward operation. He's increasing troop deployments. Why isn't the Secretary of Defense out on the national networks talking to the American people? Why is it Secretary of State Tillerson, uh, who is, you know, constrained in his own ways, giving the press conference the next day? Um, where is the national security advisor in public messaging on this? And, you know, if we don't trust President Trump as someone with the moral credibility to make this case to the American people, how do we feel about Secretary of Defense Mattis or or National Security Advisor McMaster at this point? Is their moral credibility impeded? It's a really good question. I mean, <clears throat> you haven't seen the the kind of full on rollout, I think, that you might see. In a more organized of this, administration. Yeah, this, this, this magnitude, which also might speak, it could speak possibly to Trump wanting to be the one in front of this. We know that he likes to go out 
and to make those announcements and, and make those decisions and proclamations. You know, I, it also happened early. We don't wait till Sunday. I mean, it could be that they go wall to wall on the Sunday shows. I don't but know. I also think they this is something that nobody quite wants to own because yeah. the president, it is a real walk back from his actual position and and from his original position and to his credit he was candid about that Very, in the speech yeah. and and i actually thought i don't my <clears throat> praise for him is 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 not generally existent but you, i think we have to give him credit for that he walked out and they wrote that, it for him and he was willing to read it uh, you know <laughs> hey you know, that's true of most presidents most of the time. He had a very strong position in the campaign, and he looked a camera in the eye and said, I take it back. It's different. And I, you yeah. know, he didn't say it was wrong, because that's actually... Well, he said, he said it's different when you sit behind the desk, right, he said, right. which is what everyone told me would be true. Right. And so I, I, I think we got to give him a little bit of credit for that. That said, I, I'm sure he's not real proud of this, and this isn't what he wants to be talking about. Yeah. Uh, from from military's point of view, uh, I... You know, this is not a strategy to win. It's a strategy to stalemate, and that's not something that they're going to be out there uh, yelling about as 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 an you know enthusiast with enthusiasm. Uh, and from uh, and I'm sure they would have wanted more troops than they got. Uh, However and, many that may be, right? We still don't know. And with respect to Tillerson, uh, he doesn't really seem to be want want to be out front of anything, um, and uh, except dismantling the State Department. Um, and so, like, exactly who would be the person who would run point on this? I mean, I also think there's a feature of this that really isn't that related to Trump, and that's just the general fatigue among the American public. You know, we're 16 years into this. Let's face it, this is how press coverage has been for the past, you know, five, six years, which is there are periodic sort of flurries of reporting about Afghanistan, and then we kind of forget about it and say, oh, that's right, Afghanistan's still going on, huh? Like, 16 years. Go figure. That, yeah, you know, and that's so only possible because it's an all volunteer military. Yeah. Right. And 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 that that would be that would likely be a feature of any president. Um certainly their particular inclination. I agree that you know nobody wants to own this, but I don't I also don't think there's this ravenous hunger among the American people for a clear articulation of the Afghanistan. Okay. Sad but true. <laughs> um well, well speaking of ravenous hungers, cyber. <laughs> That was a very good transition, Shane. Cyber Great Command, segue. its ravenous ways, is now Cyber Command is now a full-fledged combatant command. It's all grown up. It's all grown up. Um, uh, for those who don't follow the intricacies of military hierarchy, um, Cyber Command had been a subordinate command under Strategic so Command. Calm. Yeah. Wait. No. Yeah, Strategic Command. Right. That's the one. That's the one. One of those S's. The one with the missiles. Uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and is sort of joined at the hip with the National Security Agency, which has the talent and capabilities and all those kinds of things that Cyber Command uses. Um, but this is an important step, not an unexpected one. Um, Susan, uh, I'll go to you first as the uh, the resident NSA in the room. Not a, not unexpected, but talk a bit about the significance of elevating it to this position, and it presages an eventual split from the NSA, we think, as well, no? Yeah, so look, none of this is surprising. This was long expected under the Obama administration. This was something that was seriously considered first in 2013, was sort of determined as premature, then again was seriously considered in 2016, sort of as they were leaving office, and for reasons that weren't necessarily clear, it was decided not to do it at this time. So this is really sort of in the bucket 
of kind of an inevitability. So there are two parts to sort of the um, the NSA cybercom f- future story. One is the elevation of cyber command to a full unified command, right? So it becomes you know co-equal uh, uh, with Stratcom. Um, the other is the breaking of the dual hat. So at the moment there is a single individual who sits who is both the commander of cyber command and also the director of NSA. So is Admiral Mike Rogers right now. Previously was General Alexander. Um, so there has, for a lot of different reasons, um, been sort of a belief that that was not a sustainable situation for the long term. Um, part of that is organizational because of the particular equities and relationships and um, and sort of weird things that happen when two very different organizations happen to share the same person as a boss. Um, you know, there, there's also issues of just uh, of resource allocation. Um, so the Obama administration had always sort of put it forward as you were going to do these two things at the same time. They'd also had a third feature, which is that uh, the eventual director of the NSA, the new director of the NSA post dual hat would be a civilian. It can't be a civilian now because you have to be the commander of cyber command as well. Um, and so that would be a civilian. Uh, that would be a civilian in the future. And that was sort of like a give to civil libertarians. This was viewed as sort of a, a privacy enhancing uh, a sort of feature. So what the Trump administration has done is um, decided to take things one at a time. So there's one thing that um, the president can just do on his own, and that's order the elevation of cyber command. He doesn't need congressional approval. He doesn't need anything else. He just he just orders it. And so that's what Trump went ahead and did. The breaking of the dual hat is more complicated because back in 2014 in the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress put a bunch of conditions saying you can't break the dual hat until you certify X, Y, and Z. So that means that Trump can't just say, and I'm going to break the dual hat. He has to get congressional buy-in as well. Thanks, John McCain. Uh, exactly. Basically, it, thanks, John McCain, almost individually. He's been very, um, uh, has really owned this issue for a number of years and um, uh, has changed his position a couple of times in terms of whether or not he thought it was premature or ready. Um, so that's where we are now. Uh, Trump has ordered the elevation of the, to the unified command. That is happening. And then he's ordered SecDef to undertake a 60-day review about the breaking of the dual hat. So in 60 days, NSA and DOD will make an announcement. I think everybody expects the announcement to be we're going to separate the dual hat. Then the real question is, will you still have a civilian as the next person? Um, Trump doesn't have those civil liberty, warm, fuzzy feelings. Um, it's much easier for him to control a military officer. So I think a number of sort of observers think eh, he's just going to put a military yeah. person um, at the at the head of NSA. Ben Where he a, could put uh, a former military person at the head true. of NSA. Right. <laughs> he likes those former generals. Once a general, always a general. I mean, Ben, from a practical standpoint, I mean, is this... How do you think that this changes the mission or the good functioning of Cyber Command? I mean, elevating it in this way, does it make it more likely that it's going to succeed in its mission, or is that not the point? So I would defer to Susan on that, but I I guess my instinct is, first of all, I think it's a very significant change, and the breaking of the dual hat would be an even more significant change. Uh, And the reason is that... Uh, the way we think about what we call NSA, which in, actually what we call NSA sort of includes Cyber Command, we, we think about them as an integrated entity because there's the leader is dual-hatted and of both. And that is a reflection of the personality and individual influence of Keith Alexander, mm-hmm. which right. was uh, looms very large over the subsequent history of both 
uh, Cyber and Command. And someone in this room wrote a very good book about. Yes, indeed. And um, and you know, the book. And and I and I think you know part of the way to understand this is that once General Alexander is out of office, there's this kind of well, what do you do about NSA Cyber Command? And that question was there when he was there, but he was sufficiently admired and valued uh, and essential that you could kind of defer the thing. And I think we're dealing a little bit with what happens to the agencies now that he's not there anymore. And I, I think that's sort of the background. And do we really want to think of these as an integrated project or do we want to think of them as two projects? I think the answer is emerging that we want to think of them as two projects. And uh, and certainly the cyber domain is worthy of uh, elevation to the full you know, uh, primary command level. I, I mean, I agree with that. I do. Um, I think there are some, some things that people, um, some current failures of cyber command that um, people are sort of saying this is going to fix that probably isn't going to fix. So one of the things the Obama administration was um, rather unhappy about was the failure to make progress in sort of the cyber fight against ISIS. Um, that's a really, really hard thing to do that isn't necessarily related to some of the issues of, mm -hmm. of sort of the co-location. And I, I think that's a that's a tough challenge. It's a, t it's a tougher challenge than any one really um, understood at the outset and it's going to endure as a tough challenge that said you know that the the jobs are not the same and the job sometimes is intention and that's that the job of the NSA is signals intelligence it's collecting uh, it's collecting information the job of cyber command is offensive cyber operations and so this sort of um like uh, this this notion of deconfliction you you find a target and then you have to make a choice do you blow it up so you can't use it anymore? Or do you do you keep it intact so that you can collect off of it? Blow it there up. Are, <laughs> we know which organization Ben would work for. <laughs> there is, uh, you know, some people have, have sort of, Bobby Chesney has talked a lot about that inherent tension. A lot of people have said, oh, it's, it's not that overstated. But I, I think it's obvious on its face that when you're the boss of both of those places, like you, you have to favor one or the other. The other sort of issue that's less, I think, I don't know, like appealing in the civil sibling rivalry sense is the other parts of the military that have felt like cyber command got too much of NSA's attention. NSA is supposed to be combat support to the entire United States military, but you know, little brother or big brother or whoever it is, that guy sitting right next to them, it turns out got a disproportionate amount of time and attention. So can I ask a, 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 a logistics question about, you know, breaking up the sibling rivalry. Um, does Cyber Command have to move out? I hope so, because parking is a nightmare. <laughs> um, and lots, so I don't actually, I don't know. I, I don't think necessarily it has to. Um, my understanding was that was sort of the assumption, only because last time we went through this, people were like drawing up plans for other people's offices. <laughs> so that was at Finally going to get the office next to the window. <laughs> Of like know, who was getting in on their space. So, so, we're, so, so uh, just just as for one more one more strange base in a strange place is now saved from closure re, re, by no, the elevation no, of cyber. But read, 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 reader service of the people who work at NSA Cyber Command headquarters. How many of them work for NSA? How many of them work for Cyber Command? I mean, is this like you're going to like empty out the Fort Meade? 
buildings or like what what, what happens like how no i mean i do think it, it'll significantly alleviate resources and i just i i don't know the plan for the co-location and i actually would suspect there's not a firm plan at the moment because they're going to do this review as part of it um you know cyber community is, a, is smaller um i could like ballpark but it would honestly be a guess you know 30 percent of people there something like that a non-insignificant that's, presence that would include that's that shorter would... cafeteria lines for yeah. sure. right and this is the things that really matter to the, the parking, day-to-day security the parking would be way better exactly yeah. um, there are no small roles only small people <laughs> and small hands speaking of small hands um <laughs> another segue <laughs> Steve Bannon, we hardly knew you. Segway king. <clears throat> That's me. That's me. Some people write a segue. Some people. Some people just have write a flawless transitions. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Steve Bannon. Not that I think anybody really th- thought that he was probably hanging on for that much longer, but Steve Bannon is officially out at the White House. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye. Um, there, you know, there, there, there is a political initial political response to this question about what does this do for. You know, Trump with the alt right, and now that Steve Bannon is out back at Breitbart, and he said he has his hands on his weapons. I think in an interview with the Weekly Standard, what kind of political Which, threat what would, would Anthony Scaramucci say about that? Yeah, yeah. Where is that guy now? Jeez, <laughs> he's hanging out with Steve Mnuchin's wife and managing her Instagram feed. Go check it out if that seems obscure to you. Anyway, um, uh, but there's another question here. I think from a from a practical process standpoint on national security, which is, I mean. One way to look at this is now that Steve Bannon is out, will things run a bit more smoothly and coherently on the NSC the side? The triumph of the globalist cucks. <clears throat> exactly. This is going to be the pivot, guys. Right. <laughs> it's going to change <laughs> yeah. this time. Um, you know, Bannon, uh, more than just his reputation for being a political, you know, truculent kind of force in the White House. Um, was running what many people thought was a parallel shadow National Security Council through the Strategic Initiatives Group, um, reportedly was putting his fingerprints on all kinds of executive orders and grabbing things before they went to the president's desk. Um, probably the most visible manifestation of his influence would be on the travel ban and the and the kind of botched efforts uh, that that went through in the beginning. Um, so, Ben, let me ask you to start with this. But, I mean, with Bannon gone, does that... Does that eliminate a kind of a roadblock or a sort of choke point in the National Security Council process or even, I don't know if I want to go so far as the interagency, but, you know, this is somebody who, you know, was very well known, did not get along with H.R. McMaster, was very much, you know, his nemesis in the White House, and now he's gone. He's out of there. Right. So I, I think, first of all, it is always a mistake 100% of the time to get excited about staffing changes in the White House under Trump. Because the fundamental personality that matters in this White House is Donald Trump. Donald Trump was Donald Trump, as he likes to point out, before Steve Bannon, who came on quite late. And Trump is not wrong about that. And the essentials of the Trump personality were well on display long before Steve Bannon was a known figure, much less a figure associated with Donald Trump. He did not make Donald Trump as Donald Trump wants us to Exactly. And and Bannon likes to kid himself that this Trump is a creation of Steve Bannon, but in fact, Steve Bannon is a creation of Donald Trump. And, um, And so I think, you know, we should all 
cool it in terms of excitement and uh, Susan's sarcastic uh, insistence that this is the pivot. A lot of people uh, believe some version of that as uh, that this is a significant event. And in the broad scheme of things, it is not a significant event. There is only one sense in my mind in which, well, two, two, two senses, one very small, um, which is that to the extent that um, there is, appears to be a concentration of power in a respectable process under serious people at the staff level going on, and, and both McMaster uh, at NSC and Kelly as chief of, of staff are examples of that and are trying to do that. Uh, that means that uh, you can imagine a process existing that would uh, reserve the insanity till later in the process. It won't get rid of it because eventually the president is still going to tweet whatever is on his mind and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. But you can defer insanity until later in the process and concentrate it in the hands of one person rather than diffuse it among lots of people. The more significant effect, I think, is that to the extent that Bannon decides to, uh, as he puts it, go to war with his enemies in the White House, you could really imagine this triggering some degree of detachment on chiefly on foreign policy issues and sort of nationalism issues of some segment of the Trumpist base from the White House. And I think that is a significant political possibility. I don't know that it has uh, f White House functioning questions, except in terms of their ability to hold on to their base. Yeah. So I think that's a, a really important point and something as a political matter that we need to keep our eyes on, I, because it's not, in fact, true either that Bannon created Trump or that Trump created Bannon. Bannon and Breitbart were part of uh, a political phenomenon that Trump then rode to the presidency. Um you know, at the end with a bit of Bannon's direct help, but they're part of the same ecosystem. And so to the extent that that Bannon does decide to aggressively um, contradict or go to war with in his colorful phrasing, um, you know, the White House, then it could have interesting political effects. But in policy terms, process aside, I think Ben's diagnosis of the likely impact on the process is right. It delays the chaos and and squarely puts it on the president's desk. And maybe we'll all get a break from the sort of soap opera stories about inside the White House backbiting, hallway sniping, gossip, whatever. Which For which Steve Bannon was a major source. Yeah. And frankly, <laughs> it's exhausting and not insightful and not even very relevant because the president is still the decider. And so maybe it'll be clarifying uh, to everybody that the problem is, in fact, the president. But in policy terms... What I think is most important about Bannon's brief presence in the White House and his departure is not only the immigration ban, which you noted, Shane, but there, there are a couple other issues on which he had major, major stakes and on which he tried to play. On one, he was largely successful. On the other, he largely failed. China. He wanted a trade war with China. He wanted major confrontation with China as America's you know, global competitor. He didn't get it. 
Um, and I would say he lost that battle right at the beginning of the administration uh, with a fairly successful uh, presidential visit, the establishment of the strategic dialogue, placing it pretty much in Tillerson's hands. Um, and, uh, and so the sort of U.S.-China process of looking for ways to work together is what has defined that relationship, not confrontation. Um, the other big issue, though, is America's relations with Europe and with NATO allies. And there, Bannon pretty much got what he wanted. The damage there has been done. The trust has been broken. Um, that Trump trip to Europe was absolutely decisive. And and the impact on European politics was immediate. Now, ultimately, the, you know, an, a, several European electorates rejected the populist candidates that Bannon wanted to fuel with this kind of approach. But they did that on their own, not because the United mm -hmm. States helped in any way. Um, and, and I think that the relationship between the U.S. and its NATO allies, going back to our first segment, especially as we are now ramping up in Afghanistan, the fact that those relations are so fractured, so um, mistrustful, uh, we're going to be paying the price for that years into the future, and that's going to be the lasting legacy of Steve Bannon. And you've still got Sebastian Gorka and Stephen Miller, who are his closest allies in that effort in the White House. True, true. But beyond kind of public rhetoric, I don't know that they have any meaningful impact. He likes his public rhetoric, he does. Dr. Gorka. He does indeed. No, I, I mean, I think that's largely, I, I agree with both everything Ben and Tammy said. I mean, I think this is, this is not the pivot. This is not the moment in which Trump becomes president and we start saying this like smoothly <laughs> functioning White House. You know, I mean, like I- It's a well-oiled machine. And just seeing the, um, you know, General Kelly has gotten lots of sort of um, credit for bringing calm for the past two weeks, I guess. Um, you know, seeing that rally last night, it's really difficult um, to imagine the conversation that's going on in John Kelly's head about why exactly um, he continues to serve. Um you know, there was this sort of an interesting, I can't remember, I think it was maybe Axios who, um, the, or, or uh, the New York Times that wrote um, a piece about um, sort of the people who are still inside and um, why they continue to serve and saying, you know, you don't know how many crazy ideas we kill. Um, and, and sort of this continuing narrative of there being adults in the room and, and, and sort of this It could be presence. so much worse. Yeah. Exactly. And so I do think that um, pushing out highly visible, highly symbolic people like Steve Bannon is is a win. I think it helps um, it helps those people feel like you know they can sort of sleep at night and and uh, uh, their views are ultimately going to prevail. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it's not that isn't just sort of self justification of you know uh, you could walk down that path kind of forever with with the president um, and uh, it's not clear to me what exactly the limiting principle is on that thinking um so I, whether or not bannon goes to war via breitbart i don't actually care like i don't think it's going to be that interesting i'm sure i'll get a lot of headlines whether it actually changes policy or chaos in the white house i just like ben said the issue is the president it's not anybody else all right let's move on to uh object lessons ben you want to go first I have many objects. Many today. objects. Uh, so what, what all the say, objects. All, yeah, the, the jungle studio is filled with all the objects. Filled with all the objects. It's filled with many objects. I'll so, tell you that much. So uh, first of all, uh, and I, and I have to thank people for these objects. Um, people have been sending me objects. Um, <laughs> uh, a gentleman I've never met 
uh, sent me a lovely uh, little baby cannon lapel pin. Oh. Um, which... Um, is Baby uh, Cannon now the mascot of Lawfare? I well, I don't know if Baby Cannon Baby Cannon is sort of more of a me thing than a Lawfare. It's a personal thing. brand to Benjamin. Yeah, but because I, I don't really want to blame like implicate Lawfare in the the insanity that is Baby Cannon. But suffice it to say that Baby Cannon has fans out there. You know, some people collect like little pig statues, little cats. Right, ben keep, collects and pe- and you could have married one of those people. <laughs> but people keep sending me little Baby Cannon things and. I loved this baby cannon lapel pin. Uh, this was sent to me by somebody on Twitter uh, who goes by the the, uh, the name Spaceman Eddie or Spaceman Ed. Uh, and I loved this pin so much that I turned around and ordered a hundred of them to uh, give people as thank you gifts for, for things. Um, uh, so uh, baby cannon lapel pins uh, are... Are, are the new thing you should be wearing one uh you know the way conservatives I would have to have lapels used to, to used to wear pin. you know or sometimes wear uh uh american flag pins exactly. i think the society of the baby cannon uh is gonna start wearing wearing lapel pins all right so so thank you to to spaceman ed uh for that in addition uh i just want to say uh the uh, the person who we uh, quoted, uh, who made the pitch for the mug, uh, who we described as an FBI deep stater, uh, was was uh, so uh, touched by winning the mug uh, that uh, she sent us a group of command coins uh, from the Bureau, which we have uh, distributed around uh, uh, rational security Thank you. Uh, Thank you. We cannot identify the command coin particularly because that might give a little too much information about who we're talking about. But uh, thank you very much. And finally, uh, a group of various people have been sending me uh, Jim Comey paraphernalia. Um, (laughs) uh, You can line it up next to your Putin paraphernalia. (laughs) Cyrus Favriar of Ars Technica sent me a great kitchen magnet, Comey, Comey Don't Play That. Uh, and uh, Danielle Zitron of the University of Maryland, where we will be doing a live taping uh, next month, by the way, uh, sent a bunch of uh, uh, Comey Is My Homie t-shirts. So uh, the swag keeps coming in. <laughs> and, uh, I hope like the Comey children are collecting this all oh, as like yeah. just a hilarious memorabilia. Yeah, so they, they will cherish. Dad I, I hope he like got them all like some for Christmas. You know, yeah. like you're getting sweatshirts with Comey. Don't play that. <laughs> and you're getting pillows you get a mug. and like and a, and a Muller time T-shirt while we're at it. Yeah, we're- <laughs> The, the Muller Time T-shirts are pretty funny. Those are pretty uh, great. I have yeah. to say. I have to say. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to quickly share one object. I think I talked like, gosh, maybe a year or so ago, about how I was doing all my family tree research yeah. and found all these ancestors, including the Revolutionary War ones. Um, so on our vacation, we actually found the old Kinney burial ground Ooh. in Griswold, Connecticut, which doesn't have a whole lot going for it. Uh, but this burial ground is here as a scenic site. Um, I, I don't know if you can see it, but like that is a whole 
very old cemetery. Wow. Full of my peeps. But they're just Those are like Harris's everywhere? They're Kinney's, actually. So it's my mother's Ooh. line. How old? Family. Well, my seventh great grandfather was apparently interred here in 1756. Dang, wow. man. And that he may be one of the oldest ones in there. And the last person who was buried here was buried in 1913. Wow. Uh, and so, according to the gravestones, I mean, there are veterans of numerous wars, actually, who were in this. So I thought I'd bring in a picture of this. But this doesn't quite do it. This has, it's, it's in this very, like, peaceful kind of opening with dappled sunshine from a tree canopy. And it's next to a little creek. To reach this, you need to walk past a private house that looks like something from the scene of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> which has a right-of-way next to it, but no trespassing signs posted, which is a little confusing. <laughs> so you kind of have to walk by this thing and hope that nobody like jumps out and shoots you. Then go through. It's not really so much a path as much as like just kind of like treads worn in the dirt. And if you've ever seen True Detective Season 1, where they go into that abandoned, like, crumbling edifice called Carcosa. Like, there's, like, five of these Carcosas <laughs> that you have to walk through wow. to get there, which apparently was land that was deeded for this cemetery to my family that had all these old buildings on it. And finally, you get through, like, a little broken wall where there's a clearing and there's the cemetery. This thing is made for, like, kids to hang out on Halloween uh, and freak each other out, which is apparently what happens given like the profusion of liquor and beer bottles <laughs> and campfire sites <laughs> and then the rope Party swing central. hanging from a tree that at one point apparently was reached by stepping on old headstones that oh the local my. kids stacked up to get to the rope swing. I just want to say while, while Shane's family over the centuries was being buried in that <laughs> cemetery – my family was uh, being killed in pogroms in, in Russia <laughs> by Cossacks. So, uh, you know, those two pictures of America right there. Exactly, right there. Right go. there. Um, so I have no plans to be buried in the old Kenny burial ground, <laughs> just so we're clear. I always imagine, like, shooting you out of a cannon. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Something dramatic. Baby cannon. <laughs> baby cannon. Baby cannon. I will start planning my funeral arrangements. Oh, but not before, not hopefully not too soon. But we're at the end of the show now, so we do have to say goodbye. A little funeral for this episode. <laughs> Dead and buried. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti and Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our webpage. You can follow us on Facebook. Tweet us. Follow us at RATL Security. Leave us a rating and a review. Uh, they really help us out on iTunes or Apple now, I guess it's called, or Stitcher, wherever you download your podcast. As always, thank you very, very much for all the positive feedback, and it helps others find the show. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Our show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Our music this week was performed by Steve Bannon and the Peevish Pivots. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like the Peevish yeah. Pivots. Sounds like a little like a 50s kind yeah, of... Yeah, do up. You know, like the platters. <laughs> uh, of course, our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan. We hope that she has had some lovely vacation and rest this summer as well. On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>